I saw an incredible green future and I wanted other people to be able to see it. And so I wanted there to be something positive, something designed forward, something bipartisan, something pro-business, so that someone who lived in the city could be an environmentalist. Hello and welcome to the Age of Plastic podcast with me, your host, Andrea Fox. This is the podcast that asks, in the style of talking heads, how did we get here? And more importantly, what can we do about it? Today's guest wants to create a simpler, wealthier, greener and happier planet. But how? Find out on today's episode as I'm joined by Graham Hill, Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in Business, CEO of The Carbonauts, a company that teaches people how to reduce their carbon footprints in under six weeks while saving money and influencing others. And before Carbonauts, he also founded the groundbreaking website Treehugger, which was the most trafficked green site for years with billions of page views. His TED Talk views are in the millions. And today we delve into his belief that a tipping point could be reached if we can get 3.5, yes, just 3.5 of the world's population to live compelling, low footprint lives. Plus, Graham Hill discusses the big five, the highest impact actions you can take to slash your environmental footprint. Here he is now on the Age of Plastic podcast. How did it all start for you? My parents, although they might argue against this, were hippies. And so I grew up uh, on uh, like a hobby farm, definitely in the woods, um, heating with wood and turning lights off. We had a lot of power outages and that kind of stuff. So basically to come from that, um, in through design school, I was vegetarian for a while. So I was somehow drawn to that. And then I ended up uh, falling in love with the internet very early and uh, having the luck of building a company with my cousin in Seattle, building websites, one of the first ones, and it at a at age of 25, and it went very well and built it to 60 people and sold it and made some money. And so uh, at 28, uh, I really had the, the the great fortune of being able to be really choosy about what I wanted to do, and I was always really drawn to environmental matters. And so uh, in 2000, I basically started on that journey and. Um, here we are 22 years later. Yeah, wow. And how do you think that the sort of modern environmental movement has changed? I mean, you've been working in it for 20 years. I know you've said that it's the modern sort of environmental movement as we think of it's probably been around for 30. So uh, how how do you think we're doing in this fight against climate change? <laughs> I like to keep things positive. <laughs> uh, not great. Not great. Mm. Uh, and there's some fantastic news uh, on the daily and and humans are smart and and resilient and and certainly when we under when we get our backs against the wall or understand that our backs against the wall uh, we can be very creative and get a, a a lot done and so I'm I'm extremely optimistic but no we've we've known about this for a very long time and I've had plenty of chance to do something and have done uh done very little and there's incredible news and huge companies are making uh really big moves many of our clients uh you know there's some fantastic stuff happening up there so it's 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 i'd say it's it's a very mixed mixed bag uh but there's great news and there are things that I, I want to kind of ask you when you touch on those big clients that you work with, because there are some huge names like Amazon and Chanel and Toyota and Discovery. But first up, 
Treehugger was the sort of um, groundbreaking website that you helped found. Um, what was the idea behind that and, and how did that all come about for you? So Treehugger, uh, I pretty much had the idea in 2000. Uh, and it's one of those stories where the right technology needed to come around before it could happen. And that technology was blogging. So Treehugger was an early blog. But effectively, I guess in the early 2000s, and it, it's it's hard to envision it now, but environmental media was terrible. It just was terrible. And it was very, it had a, a pretty much like a singular focus. And so there just, there wasn't much for the common person who maybe wasn't a hippie uh, and lived in the city. Um, I like to say I'd sort of built something for yeah, someone who wears a collared shirt, might live, might live in the city. And so most environmental media at that time was really boring. It wasn't designed forward. They're literally sites at the time didn't even have pictures often. Uh, it was partisan. Uh, it was also anti-business. And it was literally stop this and stop that. And so that's fine. And, and we need that. We need, uh, I think it's a yes and kind of situation. We need all sorts of approaches. And so that was important, but there wasn't sort of anything else. And I saw from, uh, from my readings and then ending up searching the internet from reading like Natural Capitalism and Beak of the Finch and, and these sorts of books I saw an incredible green future and I wanted other people to be able to see it. And so I wanted there to be something positive, something designed forward, something bipartisan, something pro-business so that someone who lived in the city uh, could be an environmentalist. And so that was really uh, the desire. And then I was very fortunate because blogging came along. All of a sudden there was an easy way to publish. It wasn't this hugely complicated thing. It was inexpensive. And so in 2004, we, we launched Treehugger and just pushed uh, really hard. So we had this, uh, this, this great, great opportunity and we were very aggressive and we put together really good content and an amazing team, including Meg O'Neill, who's working with me again. And we just did really good work. And so we were the biggest green site on the web uh, very, very quickly and held on to that for a number of years. And um, Treehugger is still going strong, what, 18 years later, which is awesome. They've had literally billions of web pages, uh, uh, web views over the years. And it's now uh, run uh, in strange coincidence. We sold it to Discovery in 2007, and then there were a couple of joint ventures, and it ended up in the hands of IAC. And so... Uh, and ended up sort of under the direction of a pal named Neil Vogel, uh, who runs their uh, Dash Meredith group. And so it's ended up very well. And apparently they're taking really good care of them. And yeah, that's, that's a very uh, long way to answer your question, the where Treehugger came from. But I, And I also, I mean, even that name, like Treehugger, is something that was often like banded around as a bit of an insult. So I always feel like it's, like even the choice of name was almost a little bit subvertive and, and, and sort of knowing on, on that kind of, like you say, that opinion of people who are environmentalists. Absolutely. And it was a, it was a risky move. It was a risky move and we probably you know, missed some opportunities as a result because people didn't understand that it was tongue in cheek. And, you know, tree hugger was really not tree hugger. We were just sort of having fun taking a derogatory word largely 
mm. and, and and having some fun with it. And uh, but it was great because it was extremely memorable, and it just it sort of sets the tone, like where we don't take ourselves. It's a serious matter, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. And with my current company, the Carbonauts, you'll notice it's like <laughs> it's a similar vibe. So like to you know do some good work but also also have some fun so uh, yeah so not everyone got it but it, it had it had a bit of a wink and and once you got it then you're like oh that's cool I like that yeah definitely before we get onto the carbonauts um the I, I love that you point out that sort of dichotomy I suppose of a lot of the environmentalist um uh campaigns and the messaging that they were putting out in that um it didn't often speak to people um along those by those partisan lines if you are kind of you know we all have to live within the capitalist structure if you're anti-business then you're basically saying to business you don't need to worry about being environmentalist and that's kind of was the angle for a lot of a lot of the time Mm. yeah i think we're this is a tough one but i I think uh, humans love to point fingers and we have a real uh, lack of intellectual honesty and I think, it, you know, it's it's definitely everywhere, but it's also very much in this movement. And we we need to understand that we're part of this system. And, and there are very few of us, very few, who are really checked out. And so, like, I've used a lot of oil in my life. I've used a lot of lumber in my life. Like, those are things that I've supported. So for me to sort of turn around and just act as if I had nothing to do with them. And it's just these big, bad companies. And it's just, it's just not fair. And so we really need to think about like, how do we, these are all people, these big companies, we are them. We buy from them. We work in them. We invest in them. Like we're part of them. And and some people aren't, some people really, really check out. No, that's a, that's an approach, but I think we need to think about how we transition them. Mm, how yeah. how we uh, and just acknowledge be intellectually honest about where we're at we we have relied on them and it's just it's not fair to just uh yeah so i can go on about that but yeah so we really want to help these the companies um transition those are they're full of people they have skills uh they you know they a lot of them need to be doing things very differently that is for sure and we need to we need to help them get there yeah and that i guess is where the other brilliant business that you've come up with with another cheeky tongue-in-cheek name the carbonauts it's in naught carbon get it everyone you get it (laughs) um so this is your most recent venture the founder and ceo of the carbonauts and it is a way to teach people to reduce their carbon footprints and while saving money and influencing others and you also sort of say that this is possible to do are under six weeks. So you've obviously got loads of knowledge from tree hugger but when did carbonauts start first start to become an idea in your head so i think that the the and the the big change there was it's just we're in different times so 2004 the stated objective of tree hugger was mainstream green how do we get sustainability mainstream so back then it was very much about how do we build awareness because that's what we needed not everyone sort of knew about this stuff or got it. And so build awareness. Nowadays, it's something like 96% of the population sort of get it. Like people know, people are concerned. So we have the awareness. So the movement has done a good job 
of building awareness. And climate doesn't care about awareness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> climate do doesn't care about our feelings. Just doesn't. It doesn't care about the stuff that we say. It cares about the stuff that we do. It cares about our actions. So in a way... This is a physics question. We got carbon in the wrong place. We're you know, doing the wrong stuff with plastic. We're, and so uh, we need to get focused on the physics. So we, we need to move people from awareness to action. Mm. So that's the, that's the sort of the big reason that I wanted to build, build the Carbonauts because I was just frustrated after decades of this work seeing you know lots of people that get it and have feelings about it but aren't actually doing anything um or not much mm. and there are a lot of great solutions like that's where we're really lucky and so i would say like if there is a if you do care which is everyone and there is a great solution many of them that don't even require any sacrifice whatsoever we got to get people using those solutions it's just it's it, it's critical. And when you get people using those solutions, then you build volume and prices come down and the whole thing moves. And so uh, that's a big focus. How do we move people from awareness to action? And so that's the problem I set out uh, to solve with the Carbonauts. Yeah. And you have some huge clients, like I mentioned, Amazon, Chanel, Toyota, Warner Brothers, Discovery, Netflix, even HarperCollins. Um, so what what are you providing for them? What are you providing for these companies? So, I mean, the big idea with these corporations, and we we do some, um, people say direct to consumer, like saying direct to citizen, B2, B2C. Uh, we do some of that, and we're actually circling back to that. But companies are a really important part of this whole mix. And I think we can't point fingers. It's not the individual. It's not the corporation. It's not the government. It's everyone. And so we, we've got to get everyone on board. But the corporations are a really big, big part of it. Um, and the really good news is that many companies have really aggressive goals and our clients being some of them. And, and that's amazing. And But we have to hit those goals. And there's a... As you know, you watch the news, listen to, you know, listen to what all of our institutions and all of our scientists saying, we've got a lot to do and we've got a real time problem. If we had a couple hundred years, no problem. Wouldn't even be worried about this. We'd get there, but we don't actually have much time. So we've got a long way to go in a short period of time. And so uh, they say culture eats strategy being that you can have a fancy strategy, but really your culture is so critical. And so in the context of trying to move a long way in a short period of time, you gotta get your culture on board. You gotta get everyone rowing in the same direction. And this is at a time, as you know, where the, your average person, when you talk to them about sustainability, the, the conversation moves like a magnet to packaging. People start talking about straws and they start talking about packaging and that packaging is really important and we have to solve plastic and that, that's absolutely important, but people don't understand the overall and there are a lot of other things that are really critical. You got to switch your home to renewable energy. If you're driving, you got to figure out how to reduce that and drive electric as much as possible. 
You got to get to move to a plant rich diet. You got to reduce food waste. You got to compost. You got to reduce and optimize your flying. If you can buy high quality offsets, and you need to talk about this to build the social norm. So there's a lot of other stuff uh, that's really important to to get on. And so uh, our role with these corporations is really to help them move their cultures, to help them create uh, this building momentum within their company of people who uh, are climate literate, so understand the basics of this stuff, and are enthusiastic, such that we can go a long way in a short period of time. And so what we do with them, uh, despite being a techie guy of many, many years, started, started my first company in 95, um, we sort of went back to basics. And uh, in, in uh, a big part of being human is that you like connection and that's why you and I are uh, have our videos on because yeah. we like to connect and see each other's faces and that's important and so I've seen lots of apps and stuff over the years and those will have an effect and for some people that'll work but um, we have found uh, that the thing that really works are uh, live cohort-based workshops so where you're with other peers and and a, a very passionate enthusiastic knowledgeable leader and you get involved you get your head involved you get your heart involved you get connected to what this is all about so we we educate and i like education but i'm most excited about getting people to to take action because if you take an action uh, it's a great way to build identity you do something and then you're like oh i'm the kind of person that does that and that sort of builds the identity. So our role with these corporations is uh, we sort of, we use a bit of a sleight of hand where we start by getting uh, people to focus on their homes. And so for most people, we're inherently somewhat selfish. And uh, so homes are very important to people. And so we get them to focus on uh, what we call the big six. And those are what I just laid out. So the six most impactful things for you to reduce your footprint. And in that process, it's just easier to get them enthusiastic and knowledgeable. And then they bring that all to work. And then we'll start working with the company on stuff more directly uh, focused uh, on the company business itself. So, yeah, so that's our, our, our basic strategy. Just how do we move the company from awareness to action? And, and part of it is really, uh, I'd say there's, unfortunately and fortunately, there's only a small percentage of the population, probably under 5%, that will really do things just because it's the right thing to do. The rest of us- That low? Uh, tend to, is it 5%? Yeah, I think so. I, that's, I mean, this is a, not a scientific uh, thing, but I would say so. So you need incentives for the rest. And so mm. we help find these change agents within companies and uh, we get them fired up and, and climate literate and enthusiastic. And the, our idea uh, is basically if you can build from 5% to about 25%, that's enough of the population that the whole thing flips pretty much because the other 75% intuitively know that whatever it is, is the right thing to do. And so it just, that's how you change your overall culture. So yeah. that's what we do with uh, corporations. Yeah, and I'm amazing. You've you've touched on um kind of that the the big the big ones that you mentioned there, um mm -hmm. and you believe that just 
3.5% of the world's population, if you can get 3.5% of the world's population, and we're speaking on the day when apparently the 8th billionth human has been born, uh, or there are 8 billion of us alive right now, um, the world's population will be able, if we can get that 3.5% living um, low footprint lives, then we will reach a tipping point, which seems like quite a small number, right? And are really achievable, which we all like an achievable goal. I think sometimes this wicked problem of climate change, which is all these interconnected things, it starts with the straw, but really, come on, we've moved on from that. That's, as I always like to say, like gateway issues into those much bigger issues. You can't really be worrying about, um, you know, plastic bottles on your private jet, for example. It's that mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> that kind of thing in our head that we need to get past. But yeah, 3.5%, you think that that would be, that would be enough? I, I would say our, our thinking, and I, I probably need to <laughs> change up some of that, our thinking has evolved a little bit from right. that. Um, that 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 number is 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 relative uh, to some work by a wonderful woman at Harvard looking at uh, sort of revolutions like against the government, typically. So where people hit the streets and and the idea there is. Basically, if you can get three and a half percent of the population protesting regularly, so hitting the streets, that's when governments will will topple and you'll have a change of things. And I think uh, I think the the what what we've come to believe there is if you get three and a half percent of people regularly on the streets, it feels like it's everybody, even though it really it really isn't. It really <laughs> packs the streets and it feels like, wow, something's really happening. And the rest, if they intuitively, most of them, uh, believe in what's happening, then that's when things will flip. So, I think we're we're our sort of new way of looking at this would be more that yeah, if you can get a there are probably a few percent of people already that are your change agents, and you can find them and build to you know. And these are all uh, all guesses, but mm. people think that if you can get to twenty five percent of the population, that's when the thing will will really flip. So a little bit of a different uh, scenario because we aren't we aren't out in the streets protesting. Um, but the general idea is this, is the same, and I think that the, the the whether it's three and a half percent or twenty five percent or somewhere in between, mm. the the uh, the big idea there is that social norms really matter. They really matter. It's how we work. And you can see that in, in such a crystal clear way over the past number of years with the rise of social media and a, a post-fact-based world, mm-hmm. right? It matters what your tribe thinks. It yeah. doesn't even for most of us. And of course, we, on whatever side you're on, you probably think it's the other side that has the problem, but basically we all believe what our tribe believes, period. And that's why these people are able to believe things that we think are uh, just don't even make any sense. And it's mm-hmm. because of the tribe. So the social norms are critical. And so the idea there is you just, you gotta get, a, you gotta build a movement of people living in this new different way such that it starts to really build some momentum and everyone intuitively knows what we have to do, that it's the right thing to do. And that's when the whole thing will flip. So you have to build a social norm. So that's why part of our big six is building social norms, is helping people understand that they really need to share. You need to really make it okay uh, for other people to join. And you Mm -hmm. also need to make it clear that so that other people know, oh, they also feel that way. 
And so some of this stuff, you know, you think about EVs and solar panels. Yeah, electric vehicles, yeah, and solar panels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're very visible. And so they spread quite nicely because they, they, they're, they're known to be contagious. So a neighborhood that has solar panels, someone has solar panels, it just gets the people on the block talking and all of a sudden they start spreading. And so those ones uh, tend to do better. But uh, the ones like switching to renewable energy, which... For example, in the U.S., basically you can do in every state, probably in about 10 minutes with a phone call or getting on a website. Wow. Those are less visible and very important. And so uh, the building social norms is really getting people sharing in a really positive, helpful way, non-preachy, uh, maybe asking questions, um, just getting sharing your own personal experience and excitement about those things is really critical in particular for the things that uh, are not visible. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. Such a good point. And like you said, we are social creatures. Um, and so it's hard to step out of those social groups. I mean, as a as a journalist, I always hate when people don't fact check the things that they watch or listen to or share on social media. Mm -hmm. But but uh, yeah, essentially, it, it, we are that that tribe. And going back to something else you just mentioned, there's so many, not necessarily protests, but when people have been trying to change the laws here in Europe recently, it has been really helpful, like you say, to get that face to face contact. I think mm -hmm. um, when they were repealing the eighth in uh, Ireland, what they had was a load of church halls with people who had questions to come in with with no judgment, like no judgment on whatever question that you needed to ask. And that's why. Mm actually they did see a shift and a change because there wasn't that no one was being talked down to and everyone felt like they had the information that they could make the choices uh, when it came to that referendum vote. A short interlude in the podcast now to remind you that we can't all do this alone. If we want to divest from fossil fuels like plastic, we need everyone and all companies on board. So if you want to find out what the companies you use are up to when it comes to sustainability, but you don't know where to start, there's a handy form that you can download and use to email to any company. You'll find it on my website, iamandreafox.co.uk. Back to today's episode. You talk about that that big six, and I wondered in your experience what people find the most difficult to change. Because some things I always say on the podcast, I know it's not a visible one, but switching your energy supplier is a super easy one. Like you say, you can do it in 10 mm -hmm. minutes in the US. Yeah. What are the, what are the more difficult ones? Do you think in terms of like social change? I, I think it's gonna it'll really vary depending on who you are, and I need to make you know very clear what's really important is you know you know sometimes there is a financial cost of these, and that not everyone can afford these things, and that's uh, that's really understandable. So we just try to lay out all sorts of solutions, and 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 you sort of you do what you can. So I think it's gonna be a largely personal, uh, you know, diets tricky for people i think i was gonna say you I've, I've watched one of your ted talks which touches on diet so let's get into that because i think you have sure. a really interesting way which i might steal <laughs> to Great. talk about your own diet so explain that for us so i gave a talk uh geez probably 12 years ago now at ted called uh, weekday vegetarian and basically i just was thinking I, i'd been a vegetarian for five years or so and I just was, it wasn't anymore at that point. I just was thinking like, why is it so challenging? Mm -hmm. And I just came to realize that like a lot of people, they're, they're not ready for their last hamburger or steak or chicken sandwich or whatever. They're just not ready to do it. And as a result, many do nothing. Yeah. They and never so do it. it. They never even try yeah. to have their last hamburger. 
It's a so it's a it's a um, it's an example of making per the perfect the enemy of the good. Mm. And so I thought, well, what is there a more measured way of doing this that could get people eating a lot less meat? So overall, we'd be in better form. And that's when I came up with the idea for a weekday vegetarian. And so it's very simple, you know, nothing with a face during the week and then eat whatever you whatever you feel like on the weekend. Uh, I like to say I'm, I definitely have some cheating, but I'm like a weekday vegetarian plus in that I also uh, we've come to understand that beef and lamb are way have way way more emissions than the rest of the meats and so if you can just swap those out you make some progress so so yeah so weekday vegetarian uh plus is what uh what i try to try to do yeah i love that and, i'm gonna steal that because i used to sort yeah. of say I'm, I'm a flexitarian which has become one of those sort of new words but actually yeah that feels yeah somehow weekday vegetarian feels a lot more doable because i i know that i personally and i'm sure lots of other people out there I don't like. I can't be absolutist about things. I just it doesn't work for me. Yeah, like, I am yep. never doing this, or I will always do this. Just feels like a rule that I'm going to rail against. Right, we're can be naturally rebellious, and I would say like to all the vegans out there, amazing, and I'm. Yeah. It's very impressive. Like it's and thank thank. It's great that people can do that, and I love it. And I just think that it's it's easier for me to envision the world eating half as much meat as half the world being vegetarian mm. and vegetarianism has from what i understand sort of been pretty much i don't know five six seven percent somewhere around there for a long time it hasn't really moved that that much so just trying to propose something and there and and when we teach teach this in our workshops we talk about just designing your own diet like what works for you you might be uh what is it vegan before six vb6 or you might be uh I only only eat meat when I'm out or only mm. eat meat at home or um, what do we fish and what do we once called uh, fish and fowl, I think is the, yeah, like I you only like eat the. I'm fish like and fowl just, these days. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So just find, find some system that works well for you. And, yeah. but you need something with some parameters, with some guidelines, with some guardrails. Otherwise you don't, you need to know Tuesday night when you're going out for dinner or you're at the grocery store, you need to know sort of how am I doing? What, how, do I, how do I make this decision? And so what I like about uh, Weekday Vegetarian, and I think there are many other options, uh, you need something with some rules so you know whether you're, you're winning or losing. And so Weekday Vegetarian is like, is it a weekday? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I shouldn't be eating meat, ideally. And, and the way I look at it, too, you do that, and then you have a little cheating, and you probably end up being half a vegetarian without much effort. And you probably save some money, and you, it's definitely good for your health, and it's definitely good for the planet, and it's definitely better in terms of, you know, less animal cruelty is, is better. And... I think the vegans are are 100% right and that we'll probably look back in 20 years and just be like, why were we doing that? I mean, mm. there's some like 90 billion animals are killed a year. I mean, it's sort of, it's it's amazing that any of us can do it. And I include myself in that. Yeah. And I suppose, I know regenerative food systems are one of those things that you look at. It's It's such a such a difficult thing isn't it to change these huge practices around but we're managing to do it in terms of cars becoming electric so yeah hopefully we will also see that and and it does touch on that thing of people do what they can afford right now and if they can't afford to be doing mm -hmm. certain yeah. things then it's not about 
yeah, guilt tripping people. It's about everyone doing what they can. Yes. And not with for everyone, but generally and statistically, it's very clear that the amount of money you make is tied to your footprint. In other words, mm. more money means more footprint. So people with more money have if 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 we're looking at sort of their response, quote unquote, responsibility, they have more of it. You know, mm-hmm. so I think we uh, certainly the more money you have, the more you you it's easier for you to do many of these things. And you also have a larger responsibility because you have a bigger footprint. So um, I think, you know, if you if you don't make a lot of money then you just you, you probably have a lesser footprint and you have you know, less of responsibility yeah. also. Yeah. Don't stress yourself about it. <laughs> right to a billionaire. I'm, no, I'm kidding. Yeah. But you talk. You mentioned that word footprint, and it brings me to another thing that you've talked about on a TED Talk a few years back as well, which when I saw it, I thought, this speaks to me like living in Europe. I wonder how this went mm. down in America. And what I'm talking about is your idea of living in smaller spaces. And I think living in the UK, seeing the amount of space that Americans have to build on because you're such a vast country and you have all of this space, um, how did that idea go down? Uh, so you're referring to Life Edited, which was my yeah. sort of company between Tree Hugger and the Carbonauts. I did it for about a decade. Um, the idea there was just how do you live, or that you that if you apply smart design technology and maybe a little behavior change, that you can live a smaller life, and a smaller life will save you money. It's going to be better for the environment, and it's also very likely a happier life. And so, uh, yeah, Europe's definitely been better at that. There's just sort of bigger spaces and more room uh, in the U.S. And so culturally, it's Mm -hmm. a newer country. And so it's evolved just to be generally bigger, bigger cars, bigger houses, more spread out kind of stuff. Um, And so, but there's, I would say, I would say there's there's a great interest in the U.S. and some people are definitely doing it. And so, like, I wrote a, a op-ed for the Times that was like the fourth most read for the year. And my the TED that TED talk on living with less has gotten like six million views. So uh, I don't say that to 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 pat myself on the back more, just that it's been fascinating for me the amount of interest, like people. We've got a $22 billion storage industry. Like we store so much stuff. And so I think intuitively people know, they just feel like, wow, I just got too much stuff. This is like a lot to manage. And it feels, it feels wrong from a financial perspective. It feels like a lot to deal with. And it feels like a lot from an environmental uh, uh, viewpoint. And so, yeah, so living, you know, less but better, living with less. If you can edit down your space and your stuff, uh, you can live, uh, uh, save some money and uh, have a lower footprint and and I think uh, also live happier. Yeah. And are you still, you're still in that life edited space? That's that's how you live, is it? Uh, I, I tend to. I moved from New York, so I lived in a 420 square foot. And then I moved into a 350 square foot. That one was on the cover of Dwell. Uh, and then I moved, uh, I moved west. So I, I have a, 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 I'm in more space now. I'm just renting. And I built a house in Maui, which was sort of everyone would would sort of comment, oh, well, sure, you can do that for a single person, but you can't do it for a family. 
And so I built the one for the family. So I built a thousand square foot, uh, four bedroom, two and a half bath in, in Maui off grid as well. Wow. And so, yeah, so I've done a lot of this stuff and I, I love it. Uh, but right now I'm, I'm uh, renting in uh, Venice beach. And so I have a, uh, uh, 1400 so i'm living large right now um but it's a it's a, a two two bedroom and i have had actually a roommate for quite a bit of that and now i i have sort of people that come and go um, my friend you penders here for example right now um and i'm i i use it as an office um and i also i've been doing these sustainability dinners i've done like 25 of them Wow. And so I have a very long table in my living room and a and, and long table in the backyard. And so a lot of it is like getting as much as you can out of the space and also not having it empty. And so, yeah, so I, I I'm trying to not <laughs> build something else just because I love it so much, but it's <laughs> such a huge time suck distraction. And I've just said, you know, so carb knots is very much my focus. So, I'm keeping things simple uh, for now, but I, no, I very much believe in it. I, 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 you know, I, I love small living. This one's at the current, at the current time, this place is a little bit bigger than I normally would have, but I'm using it uh, aggressively also. Mm-hmm. I love that. That makes me feel better about the fact that we basically call our house, our, our flat, a hotel because there's always people coming to stay. <laughs> yeah, there's always people here. That's the nice thing yeah. about it. That's that. Yeah, that's why we have that little bit of extra space. But I'm I'm saying this as someone who lives in, you know, I don't have a big house. We have a flat. Um, but but yeah, I just and I, and that idea of stuff. I I really have tried to like edit down stuff and stop getting family to get me stuff because it is we we don't need it. We have too much stuff editing down your life you're not going to miss half the stuff that you like you say that billion pounds billions of pounds in the storage industry like what what's realistically there that we need right and you do like you have a couple of examples that for almost everyone you 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 know maybe you went to school so you lived in a dorm or you had a small Mm -hmm. amount of space or you go on vacation and you're staying out of a hotel and you don't have much of your stuff like very happy times for most people so Uh, it's very, I mean, our happiness levels have not changed since the fifties and we have literally, uh, we have smaller families and way more space. So the total is basically three, three X. We have three X the space. This is an American stat or North American stat three X what we had in the fifties and our happiness levels are the same. It is so crystal clear that happiness is not tied to, to space and stuff. And we know it intuitively. Happiness is about relationships. Happiness is about connection. Happiness is about experience. It's not about having a ginormous home, you know? Yeah, definitely. I wanted to bring it back onto plastic as we are the Age of Plastic podcast. Yes. Um, there is so much waste in the world. There is so much single-use plastic. We need to get off of this fossil fuel addiction that we have with plastic mm-hmm. um, and find ways to remove it from the environment. But it has been a useful material in some instances. And I like asking this question because I yeah. feel like at some point in the future, we will have a replacement uh, for all the plastic that we currently have. I would like to see that, maybe. We'll see. Mm-hmm. But do you have an mm-hmm. item of plastic in your life that you're really thankful for? I mean, this is like sort of what we were talking about earlier. Like you got to be, it's, you got to be thankful and you got to figure out how to help the transition happen. So yeah, I mean, there's plastic everywhere, everywhere yeah. in my life. And it's, you know, it's incredible. 
it's a, it's it's a amazing stuff from I don't know from my uh, kite surf gear to my you know stuff on my bicycle stuff on my EV to yeah. I mean I'm literally looking at you on a big piece of plastic yeah plastic <laughs> exactly plastic I mean plastic the world mouse plastic microphone is, <laughs> is plastic and so we have what you don't see um, on our website is we have a whole twenty set of twenty other workshops and so we have a, like a low plastic living one mm. we're really focused on that and and we're called the Carbonauts and our through line is carbon and mm-hmm. we have to fix carbon. But we, we can solve for carbon and still have a pretty crappy world. And so we we're not uh, we do focus on the other stuff as well. And plastic is a big one. And we need to we need to move past it and figure it out. So, you know, I think cradle to cradle was really uh, ingenious in that we need sort of two different cycles. Uh, one is for technical nutrients, of which plastic might be one. And one is for uh, more uh, biological, so stuff that's compostable. Mm-hmm. And uh, our plastics need to end up being one of those two. Either we're able to to take it back and make something of equal value, upcycle it, or uh, be able to throw it in the compost heap and, and have it uh, decompose in a reasonable amount of time. So that's where our plastic needs to go and and whoever figures it out is going to make an unbelievable amount of money and do a <laughs> whole bunch of, of good for the world and i think it's coming yeah i have chatted to um the peeler founder jeremy lang who's brought out his lomi recently and we do have a lomi here because we don't have food waste recycling but one thing you can do with it is any plastic like vegware that's um compostable it can which you can't compost just in your compost bin in the garden at home it can deal with that and I wonder if they could upscale that for like flat blocks of flats, like where I live and things like that, whether that could be um, one of the elements that will help with this. Cause I just find that tech really, yeah. in, really interesting. And I suppose. Absolutely. Can... They, yeah. they can 100%. Yeah. They can do that. And um, you come from the tech world. I just wanted to ask you quickly on that. Um, there's, there's such a lot of carbon in the tech world. Do you think that's going to be a real contentious issue as we see, you know, so many more startups and everybody using technology? Do you think that will be a bit of a a point of a conflict? I, th- I think people are becoming aware uh, rapidly about the, you know, the the footprint of tech and that it's not, you know, it feels like you're, all your email and Slack and digital music, et cetera, doesn't, how could that have carbon? Uh, but it does. And so I think there's, there's, there's a lot of people, a lot of people doing work in that area. I think uh, Amazon probably uh, one of many doing like their AWS, like they, they definitely talk about how they can make your whole system greener by putting it all in the cloud. And so I think, uh, I think there's a lot of work and and interest in, in, in doing that and uh yeah so i think it'll 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 get better and i think people will become more and more aware that it's not nothing mm-hmm. and and in some cases it's a lot and and we need to do something about it so that you know that was a big contentious issue and and probably still is with crypto yeah you know, just fintech realizing, is wow, the, this yeah, is, big uh, one. yeah this is a lot so yeah, people are thinking more and more about that, and I think uh, you know, in terms of electronics, also just starting to understand. Wow, that's that's real, and it's you know, it's crazy for us to make something that has a whole bunch of precious metals and plastics, etc., 
and then use it for a year and then just sort throw of it away. Throw, yeah. throw it away. I mean, it's sort of, it's bananas. So, so yeah, all that's headed in the right direction. Everyone's working on it. And at the same time, it's an absolute disaster. Uh, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's all of it. It's, uh, it's great news and, and horrible news. Uh, yeah. But uh, I think the world is very much waking up and wanting to make a difference from a moral perspective. Um, and but also many people are seeing the opportunity. If you if you figure out uh, a, a lighter battery or a battery that doesn't use precious metals, like you are going to be extremely, extremely rich. And so people are really focused on that. And that's, uh, you know, that's one of the great things about our stupid capitalist system that it just, you know, <laughs> it does incent. And so once, once, once people know where, what is going to make the difference, then people get focused on it. And so I think we're, you know, we see great news every day on, on, in every area. Yeah, definitely. And one quick question as well. We always ask our guests, who is your environmental hero? Who do you look up to? Is it, is it the hippie parents that set you on this course? I mean, I think books are are really powerful certainly like you know help bring me into this so natural capitalism um which i think was uh i think it was hunter paul hawken and hunter levens uh amory levens as well can't remember um but that one was a really 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 big one so i think you know the the people that write really compelling books is very powerful um but i'd also say that uh, that that what's really inspiring to me uh, are those 5% are those people that just know it's the right thing to do and they do it. And it might even require some sacrifice, but they know it's the right thing to do. And I think those are the people that uh, are going to change the world. And, and I, I really, I, I, res- I really respect those people that are doing it. And so um, that's, you know, people that are living small people that are, are living low plastic people that are uh, can't afford it really but have figured out how to get renewable energy that are composting that are, you know the people that are just doing doing the stuff um, I think that those are the people that are I find I find um, most inspiring amazing Graham Hill from the Carbonauts thank you so much for joining me on the Age of Plastic podcast thank you it was really nice uh, really nice to talk to you and uh, yeah and and if anyone's interested, our website is thecarbonauts.com. Uh, also, I'm uh, Mr. Mr. Graham Hill on LinkedIn, I think. You can find me if you search Graham Hill Tree Hugger. Uh, and we've got an Instagram. We, uh, we are the Carbonauts. And yeah, very interested. We tend to work for large corporations um, uh, in that uh, we need a lot of staff because um to find those five percent we need mm-hmm. we sort of need larger numbers and so yeah if, if any of your listeners are in larger companies and would like to uh to chat i'm graham at thecarbonauts.com graham doing my job for me with the socials there please pass them on to your boss asap big thank you to graham hill all the details that you just mentioned there are in the show notes if you want to click rather than type on to our eco life hack if you feel the rage when the supermarket only gives you options for fruit and veg wrapped in plastic well you are not alone 96 percent of us feel that rage sign up if you haven't already to the everyday plastic emails because they've got a big campaign to do with supermarket plastic coming very soon 
everydayplastic.org is the place to head. Apologies again. I said I'd be back with a bang for 2023 and I did leave you hanging a little bit there. But we will be back with an episode next week. Could be new, could be old. I'm keeping you on your toes. But if there's anything that you are struggling with in terms of reducing your plastic, environmental issues that you would love to have answered, maybe some guest suggestions or an eco life hack to share, get in touch. All of the socials are wherever you are listening right now. I would love to hear from you. Until next week. Wash your hands, wash your recycling, and I'll see you next time on the Age of Plastic podcast.